This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is the Wharton Sports Business Show podcast. A recap of the best moments from this week's show on SiriusXM, which you can hear live on Tuesdays, 4 p.m. Eastern. This is Michelle Young. This is George Perry. Here are the highlights. This is your host, George Perry, and I'm a Wharton alum, and I'm here with uh, my co-host, Michelle Young, who's with the Wharton Sports Business Initiative. Michelle, how are you doing this week? Doing all right. How about you, George? Can't complain. Some really big news uh, uh, regarding the NBA and uh, MGM. Uh, You want to tell us about that, Michelle? Huge announcement came from the NBA today. They've become the first major U.S. sports league to sign an official betting sponsor. So in the past few weeks, we've been talking about legalizing sports betting and gambling and what that's going to mean for the leagues. And here we are, uh, not even in season. The NBA announces this deal when it's pegged to be for three years and at least $25 million. Yeah, I mean, and and it's not surprising that the NBA is the first one to uh, to have a deal with a, a casino like this. Uh, Andy Silver has, uh, the commissioner has, um, Adam Silver, the commissioner, has always uh, been a big proponent of you know legalized gambling um as far as you know it's it's legalized in europe and 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 you can control it and even make some money on it and uh, a lot of the talk had been about uh, these integrity fees and that's how the league should be making money because uh you know they they're the ones that had that they're still betting on their games that they're putting on a lot of controversy about that but this is certainly a, a revenue stream that there's no controversy about now that betting's legal you can sell sponsorships to uh, to gambling sites and, and casinos and the like. Yeah, and allowing the use of the league logos and team names on boards at the MGM casinos is is huge. Yeah, I mean, yes. The, the, so now we're aligning gambling with a league, with their league marks, with their IP, the intellectual property, um, on their app, on their betting app. Uh, they're even going to be allowed to, to put, in, put on a hot turn add highlights to their app. Uh, the MGM app will have NBA highlights. Um, and so you got to believe the dominoes are just going to start falling now. Uh, all the other leagues are going to follow suit. They're going to find other casinos. They're going to find other betting organizations. MGM's clearly getting ahead of things. Last, last Just on Monday, uh, they announced a deal with a European betting, uh, online betting company, uh, and together they're going to do a joint venture, and they're putting up $100 million each uh, to set up a, an online uh, gambling site for sports betting, uh, specifically in the U.S. So amazing stuff there. So we are going to switch here, and our first guest is on the line and ready to talk to us a little bit about uh, World Cup viewership, Major League Baseball viewership, uh, NBA Summer League, uh, and the like. So I'd like to bring on Austin Carp, Assistant Managing Editor at the Sports Business Journal. Austin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Austin, I know the World Cup was a, a few weeks ago, but uh, but we'd love to kind of get your take on you know, what the prospects were going into the World Cup and, and how things turned out, in your opinion. Well, I, I guess you kind of want to start with when the U.S. team didn't qualify. I mean, uh, that had to be a huge bummer for Fox Sports, considering it was their first go. They paid a lot of money for this event, a lot more than ESPN uh, was paying, you know, four years ago, eight years ago. And, uh, you know, the results were kind of what you would expect without that U.S. team, without those three games uh, involving U.S. men's national team, possibly a fourth game if they had made it to the knockout stages. And, you know, for the entire tournament, they were down around 33%. And also, a lot of that has to do with the time zone changes. Um, four years ago, you had Brazil, which was more conducive to a U.S. audience, later matches. 
Um, this year, from Russia, it was kind of more like eight years ago with South Africa, where a lot of early, early morning matches, particularly during that group stage. And, you know, Fox uh, and uh, Telemundo got hit pretty bad early on with some of those early matches, and they started to pick it up later in the group stages and then in some of the knockout rounds, but the hole was just too big for them to dig out of. So looking at it, what do you think that Fox did well, or, or what did they struggle with? I, th- I think it was just the lack of the U.S. team. Um, their, their coverage was, was good. The announcers were good. Um, and I, I think, you know, for, especially for a first go at it, they, they really put all their resources, uh, you know, as many resources as they could into it. And they're going to take what they learned from this year, and they're going to look toward four years from now, which is, uh, you know, no quake cakewalk either when the uh, the event's in Qatar, because not only is that event also seven hours ahead of U.S. time zone, uh, East Coast, but uh, you're going to be you're talking about a World Cup now in the winter, which is a particular problem going up against uh, college and NFL football there in late November, early December. Can we switch gears a little bit here and talk about Major League Baseball? Um, coming off of All-Star break, you know, ratings have been a really big focus so far this season. Can you talk a little bit about those and how they compare to years past? Let's look at it first from a regional sports net angle because that's where the majority of the baseball is being consumed or on these local nets. And I'd say it's a you know a mixed bag right now. I think we reported in the Sports Business Journal that around 15 of those RSNs are seeing gains, 14 or down, at least in the U.S., um, Obviously, Toronto not measured in the U.S. Um, but some of the, I mean, what you see reflected in the attendance is, is kind of being reflected in the ratings. The, the top teams are seeing big games, big gains like the, the Braves and the Yankees are seeing incredible RSN numbers. But then you see a team like, you know, the Orioles or, or the Royals are, you know, they're just not seeing the return on the RSNs, and that's reflected in the gate as well. Aren't some of the, the larger market teams kind of holding the other smaller market teams up? Yeah, I mean, you're definitely seeing a lot of that season, this season. And, uh, you know, it's why a network like ESPN back, is backloaded. That's Sunday night baseball schedule with a lot of Red Sox, Yankees. So as they compete for, you know, that top spot in the AL East, you'll see a lot of that on Sunday nights going into the back half of the season. You'll see FS1 pick up some of those and Fox in their regional coverage, as well as uh, TBS on some of those uh, Sunday afternoon games that they, uh, they simulcast. You, know, you talk about marketable players, and one that's been marketable, although he's having a down season, is Bryce Harper. But he was in the Home Run Derby. He won the Home Run Derby. Uh, certainly that was a big deal in D.C. Um, what what were the ratings like uh, for the Home Run Derby and, and the All-Star game? Yeah, like you said, Harper was there, and he won. And But, you know, going into the Derby, one of the biggest things people were complaining about was, yeah, you had your Harper and maybe Kyle Schwarber as far as household names. But beyond that, it was it was a lot of who are these sorts of guys. And that was definitely reflected in the viewership. It was down around, I think, 32%. From last year, when you had some of the bigger names like you know the Yankees uh, had um, Aaron Judge, and everyone knew who Aaron Judge, even though he was a rookie, everyone knew who he was because he plays in New York, and they knew him coming into the game. So it was around, I think it was like the second lowest uh, Derby on record. So it, it did kind of hurt that you didn't have those household names. Now it's also needed to be kept in perspective that while it was down, it, it's still a relatively strong product on TV. Like you know, getting five and a half million viewers is you know. It's no slouch, and uh, it's still a you know strong property. The other sport that it's even though it's off season, uh, that seems to be getting a lot of pub and 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 even some uh, you know some content during the summer that maybe that is just they haven't really had in the past uh, is the NBA. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, the NBA summer league and the, and the big three and and how those are are doing from a, from a TV perspective? Yeah, I mean, like we talked about, you're seeing. Right. I mean, right now it's a time of year on summer where there's, you know, not a lot going on. 
Uh, you, there's no college in season. So you need tonnage to fill up the schedules. And so what you've seen over the last couple of years are, you know, particularly when you have the introduction of networks like Fox Sports 1 and NBC Sports Network, they're looking for content. And so you have like the basketball tournament, Big 3, Summer League, and ESPN and those networks are really, you know, have latched on to these new leagues and to fill their schedules during the summer. Now, the numbers aren't incredibly strong. Um, last season, you saw some some interesting numbers when you had Lonzo Ball. But that was, you know, kind of more of a TMZ-driven sort of uh, interest. But uh, this season, I mean, you're talking around the, the 200,000 to 300,000 viewer range, which is not incredibly strong. But during the summer, you know, I'm sure they'll take it. We are going to jump right into our next guest. We're very excited to bring on the show. Uh, our next guest is Tony Pantoro. Tony Pantoro spent 26 years at Anheuser-Busch, serving as the Vice President of Global Media, Sports, and Entertainment Marketing for 17 of those years. He also served on the AB Bush, uh, the, the Anheuser-Busch Strategy Committee, representing the top 15 executives of the company. He is currently an EVP of Strategy at Turnkey Intelligence, um, doing some exciting stuff with Turnkey Intelligence, which we will talk about as well. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks, George. How did your job begin, and how did it evolve over time? Well, the one thing that, uh, yes, I did move to St. Louis, and the one thing that our leadership felt was that August Bush wanted people sort of in control of sort of the, I'll call it the money, and the potential assets, the sponsorship assets that we would ultimately buy. He felt that it's very competitive, not that it isn't today, but it was very competitive for one beer company to have exclusivity in a property. So whether it was um, the Super Bowl or it was, you know, the Philadelphia Phillies or it was the New York Yankees, you know, beers were looking to to be the only voice, only marketing voice of these teams. And so you needed to sort of consolidate those brand dollars and go out and, you know, with a strategy and acquire these assets to communicate to the consumer the message for our brands. And so, so I was fortunate to be there at, its, at sort of a, a, a new time. Uh, and, and so we were uh, sort of positioned, orchestrated, directed, if you will, to go out and start, you know, acquiring assets that were strategic to the beer consumer and that we would have a strong position and in some cases be the only beer in the property and for through the 80s we had acquired 90 percent of every professional local team in the country so across major league baseball the nfl national football league the uh, nba and 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 then we also started doing official sponsorships of NASCAR and the Olympics and and Major League Baseball, et cetera. And so those were the platforms that, that enabled us to grow our business. Bud Light was introduced in 1985, and, and then we started having more brands, and, uh, and our business you know, grew over time. I'd love to hear a couple of examples of, you know, your favorite stories or your most successful um, acquisitions during that time? Well, the, the, the one that, you know, there, there's many probably things I'm proud of, but one was that we we came up with something from a creative standpoint, I can't take credit for it, uh, which was called the Bud Bowl. And it was at a time where we would create advertising where the Budweiser bottles would play the Bud Light bottles. And it was very different and unique. 
And so at this point, which was the late 80s, there was an exclusivity on the Super Bowl. There, you know, no beer had exclusivity. And so we went to NBC, which was the first network at the time. Um, there was a gentleman by the name of Art Watson who was president of NBC Sports um, and, and their salespeople and said, we want to uh, play this game, Bud Bowl, with Creative on the Super Bowl, and we want to be the only beer. And um, and we bought five minutes of time, which is was sort of unheard of back then, sort of unheard of today. You know, ten, you know, five minutes of time, ten thirty second commercials, and back then the the unit cost was about seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. Today it's probably about five million dollars. But it really was this ownership that we had displays at retail around Bud Bowl. The creative was Bud Bowl. You know, everything we did for about a six-week period was themed around this this campaign. Um, and so it gave us a 20% lift in January right away. And then, and, and then we were able to maintain exclusivity in the Super Bowl for the next, you know, 20 years uh, from the time that I was there. And, then, and, and so that I'm proud of, mainly because it was, you know, the biggest media asset in our country – you know, at any one time in the sense of its 100 million plus viewers. But it was also something that our competition many times tried to get their hands on, and we were successful sort of to do it. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's things about, you know, we had a small relationship with Dale Earnhardt, the father. You never liked to be called the father. It was, he's Dale Earnhardt, your son was Dale Earnhardt Jr., and we had a fishing and hunting relationship, not a lot of money, but he got to know the company. And one of the things at Anheuser-Busch that, that we used all the time, which started with Adolphus Bush, our founder, was making friends as our business. And it really gave us a tone of how to do business the right way, that, you know, you didn't want to be a bully, you didn't want to take your money and leverage it in a, in a strong way, but that at the end of the day, people could do business with whoever they wanted, and they ultimately, us as, you know, human beings want to do business, if we can, with the people that are good partners. And so when Dale Earnhardt Jr., when we just heard that he may be wanting to ride in the NASCAR series, we went to the father and said, we want to be the sponsor, and and we ultimately worked out that deal. So by the time he announced it, where many sponsors wanted to sponsor him, we already had that. And one of the things, and in, 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 in you know that that we saw is that you sort of don't wait sometimes for people to come to you or partners to come to you or a sports team. If you see the vision of your of your strategy, you know, go go get it before you regret not getting it. Sort of sort of a sports analogy, meeting the ball halfway. So those are those are two things. There's many more, but. Uh, um, uh, but but those were you know one which was the most dominant I think sports property out there. The second was just showing the initiative of locking something up before it even really becomes announced, but being tied with somebody and having a good relationship, and then taking the initiative to to sort of go after it. This idea to build an in-house full-service agency. So for our listeners, you know most of these major companies have advertising agencies that from Madison Avenue that make a lot of money developing commercials and buying TV and so on and so forth. But you guys had this concept of building an in-house agency. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the, the concept behind it from 
from from again our CEO and and we we believed in it and then executed was he wanted the communication and the leverage to be with one voice. That sometimes that you get at big corporations, there's um, can be too many channels of communication. There may be too many chefs in the kitchen, um, and things get sort of distorted and not you know it's not efficient to necessarily go that way. And so he believed that he was going to empower you know one person to lead the group um, to to again leverage all these brand dollars. Now keep in mind. We did that in about the end of '91. We're now spending four or five hundred million dollars in media and sports entertainment marketing a year. So it was, you know, really you know large dollars with now multiple brands, and and so it was about that one voice and that and that leverage of dollars. And so whether we were talking to David Stern at the time, who was the commissioner of the NBA, or or NBC or uh, a sports team, you know, they knew, you know, that there was this sort of one-stop shop of people, and we could leverage all of our assets all at one time. And none of us at Anheuser-Busch were ever under contract, which I always thought was unique because a lot of corporations, as you get up, and, and August used to say, you know, if I, you know, it's all about trust and as long as you do the good work and I trust you, you know, you'll be here a long time. If I, if I don't trust you, um, then you probably won't. So I'm, I'm always sort of proud that, that I lasted those 26 years because the last 17 was running this in-house operation. So, uh, and what it did is also, so it was sort of the pleasant surprise was that it gave our brand teams uh, the creativity or the flexibility from the creative, because we did not do the creative commercial in-house. So they could go to the George and Michelle Boutique Agency and and say, we need some new ideas for Bud Light, and you could present those and possibly win the business. So so it gave you know flexibility on the creative side, because we didn't need the full operation agency to do the work, because we had 150 people doing the planning, negotiation, execution of all the assets that we own. So we we were unique. Um, very few people followed, which always surprised me a little bit. And and sadly, currently the InBev company that owns Anheuser-Busch elected to disband that and go back to a more traditional agency model. But I really want to talk just a little bit about what you're doing today with Turnkey, where you're, you've launched a brand consulting arm, uh, you know, and why, why are you doing that, and what, what's your thoughts on that uh, off the bat here? Yeah, you know, it, it, it started out, you know, Len Perna, who's the owner and founder of, of Turnkey, uh, you know, we, we've been friends for since his days, really, with the Detroit Red Wings and, and before he started this business. And and we, we I actually wrote a an op-ed piece for Sports Business Journal, which I don't really, well, I've never done, to be very matter-of-fact, and, and I won't particularly say I'm that great of a writer, but it was about I didn't feel that, that people were being developed well enough and there wasn't really good cultures going on. This was a personal opinion. So Len and I sat down, and, and it started with executive coaching, and, and so where I would sit down and still do with executives um, and sort of talk about the process of their own careers, but how do they create a positive environment within their divisions of, the, of which they operate? 
And then as I started to get exposed to turnkey intelligence, so that so turnkey is made up of executive search arm as well as this intelligent data arm. So, and what was very smart of Len when he first started the company is he really started both both channels at the same time. I, I, my sense, although I've never asked him, is he said sports will need good executives and they'll need good data to support their decisions. And so he set up both at the same time. Um, but what I felt, and as I sat in meetings almost just as a, a friend of the family at first, was that there was a consulting strategy opportunity that you could have all the data you want, but it, but if can, numbers can just be numbers, but if they weren't connected to, you know, a strategy and, and, and connecting to the consumer, then they were sort of out there on their own. And so from that, we decided to uh, start this consulting strategy arm. Um, and and we're sort of seeing already that there's so much, as you all know, and I'm sure you've talked throughout the weeks of the show, there's so much going on out there. There's so much choice, the technology explosion. And so for for a, an advertiser to keep up with all that, it's you know, it's, it's, it takes a lot. And sometimes they get off track respectfully on, oh, wait a minute, I think I forgot who my customer is and what's my strategy to reach that customer and with what asset. Join us next week for another edition of the Wharton Sports Business Show podcast. And don't forget to check out the full show on Business Radio Tuesdays at 4 p.m. Eastern. This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. 